This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with a company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out of the box, bindings, component configuration directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 98 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have John Papa. Hello, everybody. Ward Bell. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. We also have two special guests this week. We have Ahmed El Sayed. Hello. And Chris Anderson. Hey, hey. Do you two gentlemen want to introduce yourselves real quick? Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. My name is Ahmed. I'm a software engineer at Microsoft. I work for the uh, app service team. I was responsible for the UI for Azure Functions that we ended up using Angular 2 for. And uh, I'm Chris Anderson, a program manager for Azure Functions. Kind of talk about Azure Functions, what our initial development process was for that, yeah. Awesome. If people want to know about Azure Functions, uh, I'm just going to shout out real quick about the episode we did uh, from the Build Conference where we talked about Azure Functions. Uh, I think the thing that's more interesting to our audience is the fact that you built the portal for that in Angular 2. And it's actually live in production. Mm-hmm. Yep. You say that like, yeah, okay. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. I've been doing it for a while now, haven't you? Yeah, it's been a while. A couple well, of months. I think, I think the thing that's interesting, though, is that I think we saw the release candidate maybe, what, three weeks ago? And yes. you built it on the beta. I'm, I'm assuming that you've updated it to the release candidate now. And so it's just interesting because we don't see a lot of production apps especially for companies like Microsoft running on Angular 2. So I'm, I'm a little bit curious, what is your experience building on Angular 2? What are the things that worked well and didn't work well, you know, building something that has to, has to work? Yeah. And be, uh, before, we, before we go there, let me just clarify. I think what Chuck meant is we don't see a lot of apps in production companies when it's a beta. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily just Angular 2 at this time. It's really who invests in putting a beta out in production. Yeah. Yes. Bleeding edge. What? <laughs> Bleeding edge. <laughs> uh, well, it was more of my choice, really. Like nobody else. Um, I, I basically made the made the choice to go with Angular two, and the reason I decided to go with it, I'm I was familiar with Angular one. Like I've used it for multiple projects before, and I liked Angular one, except for the fact that after a while it kind of gets really messy and it becomes very hard to explain to someone what's going on, and there are a lot of hacks here and there. And I was trying to look for a new framework to use for the portal since it's a new, brand new project. 
that I was starting with, and I looked up multiple frameworks and uh, ended up deciding on Angular 2 for multiple reasons. I, I knew that it wasn't beta, but I don't know, like it seemed that the development process for it was quick enough and it was like there weren't any roadblocks necessarily and I expected it to be out of beta soon as well. So I just kind of decided to go with it. I did choose Angular over other frameworks mainly because of TypeScript support. I was really, when I was looking, I just looked for a framework that would work very well with TypeScript because I didn't want to use JavaScript. Once you use TypeScript, it's kind of very hard to go back. So that was one item, definitely. Also, like the concepts and the tutorials that I found for Angular 2 were very nice yeah. uh, and they were complete even in beta. Like uh, you find tutorials that would just work. Well, a lot of other frameworks, their tutorials didn't even work and I like, had to chase like around and try to understand what's going on. So yeah, I mean, I picked Angular and uh, my experience with it so far has been really positive. Like I really like the framework. I like the how it organizes things and it's very easy to explain the code and have abstractions and stuff like that. So so where can people see this in action exactly? The part that's your part, the portal that you've written in Angular 2. So it's when, actually when, functions. Yeah, so it's functions at Azure.com. If you go to that site, initially it will redirect you to a marketing page where it has a get started green button. When you click on get started, it takes you back to functions at Azure.com. Then it asks you to log in and the app that you see there is actually the Angular 2 app. Once you log in, it displays a selection of the function apps that you have, which is a concept that I guess maybe Chris can explain what a function app is, but basically it displays that list and then it gives you the option to create something new. Once you select an actual function app, it redirects you into the Azure portal, but then it loads itself again inside there. So it's kind of... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of complex to explain with, with yeah. words. I mean, the I guess I can give some background on why we decided to go this route. Mm -hmm. So um, if you are familiar with Azure, I mean, in general, Cloud Portal, right, a lot of your things are oriented towards, you can kind of think of it as like management operations, not necessarily developer experiences. Mm -hmm. And we kind of had this challenge with Azure Functions that we wanted to get, you know, the five minutes to value kind of thing where we wanted you to be able to write code, ship it in production, and have it available in under five minutes. And the way we kind of thought about doing that was just shortcutting all the pieces necessary so that you can just get and write the code and it's already in production. So writing that code in the portal made a lot of sense. And I think you had written a demo of uh, that concept running in our like SEM uh, backend, which is like we have a we have another open source project called Kudu that does a lot of work control management for app service in general. And we had written a quick demo on that, and that had proven really, really useful. We, we started showing that around the team, and then from there, you kind of went and started Greenfield with the Angular 2 one. Yes. But the, the whole notion there was that we were going to be able to kind of take this developer experience and kind of just plant it into the, what is normally a like infrastructure management experience. Yes, because normally, like if you look at the Azure portal right now, it's mostly for managing resources. And then when you try to to like use the same framework that they are using to to design a developer experience, it becomes really rigid and really hard to do. Because like all the concepts that they have in their framework is basically around management. Like you have a list list of stuff, you click on something, it opens the settings for it. Like it, it wasn't really geared towards development, like having- Which makes sense, right. because like, that resources can be treated uniformly. Yes, and exactly. If you're doing development, it's gotta be really specialized for that developer experience. Exactly, yes. Uh, so it made more sense to, to look for a different framework or to develop it outside that portal framework. We ended up running inside of the Azure portal because we wanted to integrate with other, fe with other features in the portal because like you create a function, you want to link it to another Azure resource. So instead of writing the UI for every single Azure resource, we just, if you're running inside the portal, then you can basically just call an existing UI element to create something for you, like a storage account or something like that. Let me just sort of reprise this because there are two really cool things in here. One, you're running the application in two sep completely separate places, one in a web page all by its little self to kind of let, let me in the door. And then 
it surfaces again right within the context of this very much larger Azure portal. Have I got that right? Yes, that's exactly right. And then when, the other cool thing is that when I get in there, the kinds of cap just sort of general capabilities that are there for somebody are not only that I can flip switches and see how I relate to the resources I'm consuming, but there's actually a text area where I can start typing in my code right there. My, I, whatever this function stuff is that I'm doing, which the world, which we haven't told our audience what it is, but uh, it's a box and I start typing in there and you're giving me feedback as I type about the function that I'm writing. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That is correct, yes. Yeah. And you're also displaying output there, and there are uh, push buttons, yep. and it goes, and it actually talks to Azure right there. So I don't have to leave the portal to be able to take it from soup to nuts. Is that right? That is correct. That was our goal, yes. And that's what I think you see when you, you know, uh, the other thing is that people may not know is that your experience there is right there on GitHub and they, uh, you can clone it and bring it down just like I just did and wander around in your code and see how you did it. Yeah, exactly. So the entire UX is basically open source. The reboot that you see there is basically what's running. It's actually uh, hooked up to continuous integration with Azure. So whenever we push a change, it just pulls the change from there and builds it and deploys it. So... And that's running in a functions-next.com. Yes. So if you actually, we have like our production link, but if you want to get a short link to see our preview experiences, you can actually go to functions-next and see features as they're being written. That's pretty cool. So does it, because it has a front end and a back end, it's, it's a web portal. So is the back end written in Node or in .NET or something else? The back end is actually written in .NET, but we have very little API service in the back end. Basically, we have two APIs that list if, if you go to the portal itself and you try to create a new function, it displays a list of templates for you. And basically, the back end is just like two API calls that return the list of templates that, are, that exist and uh, another one for some other metadata stuff. But uh, everything else well, is basically client-side. That's really, that's really interesting because I hear a lot, hey, John, I'm trying to build an Angular app with ASP.NET MVC in the back end. Do I really need to use the views with ASP.NET MVC, or can I just take advantage of the web APIs? And I'm curious how you guys approach that. We're just taking advantage of the web APIs. I mean, I ended up using views for one very small thing. Like, basically, I wanted my index.html page basically to append the commit ID for uh, to bust the cache. So I ended up using views to get the commit ID, but really, I'm only using the web API on the back end. I'm not using any MVC views or anything like that. I think that's great because I agree with you there. I've done the same thing. And some people, I feel like, are starting the rumor that that's a dirty thing to do. That <laughs> If you're going to use ASP MVC, you have to use the whole thing. And I think a great source is to just take advantage of the web APIs and then use Angular yeah. 2 for the front end. In fact, it looks much cleaner for me that way. Like just to have web API on the back end, which is clear REST API interface, and then have your client app that runs completely separate from the client, that architecture seems a lot cleaner to me than uh, managing stuff with MVC. And, uh, yeah, it's this classic service-oriented architecture, being yeah. able to take lots of different things and just stitch yep. them together, focus on the fit client. And I'd like to step back for a second, too, to answer the first question a little bit more thoroughly. You guys kind of just made the assumption of, yeah, I chose to, we chose to make the Angular 2 investment right away in beta, and you kind of gave your reasons to how you thought about it. But I'm curious, if people out there are listening and, and want to go and follow in your footsteps, could you tell them a little bit how you got approval for this or how they should approach their leadership and say, how do you suggest getting that approval? I mean, it, it was kind of interesting for us. I mean, so I don't know if you have noticed Microsoft is a bit different in the way that we approach problems. We, we kind of start with default open source. And so for us, since we knew that we were going to open source the UX mm -hmm. and, you know, the Angular 2 itself was open source, there wasn't really any 
problems for us management wise since it, everything was kind of designed to be open source and it was going to stay open source. Yeah. It, it didn't end up having any um, major kind of approval things. If we were trying to consume it and in a way where it was going to be closed source from the beginning and it was going to, we were going to have to provide customer support for it and actually have to ship it, we would have run into more problems. But since we were managing the UX and we're shipping the UX ourselves and it's not, the UX isn't really designed to be run by someone else mm-hmm. in this case. Yeah. And it ended up being basically a no op, just kind of like with, with inside of Microsoft, if you're using MIT, it's, it's pretty much a no Yeah. If you're so. using MIT, you don't really have to get approval and then I just, I basically just picked the framework and I talked to my manager and he was fine with it. So, yeah. Even if that framework is, but I, I guess what I'm going at is even if that framework is a beta and it's not in full release yet, I mean, were there any uh, questions or things you had to answer to your leadership about, hey, is this thing going to be around or is it stable yet or is the API changing? Azure Function itself is in preview right now. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of it. The other part was not really. I didn't have to do anything. I mean, there were some raised eyebrows. It's like, this isn't beta. Are you really sure you want to use it? And I... I basically just made the decision that, yeah, I'm going to use it. Um, I mean, I remember really, looking at you the first time you told me that it was still yeah. on Angular 2. I'm like, wait, Angular 2, that's that's not in production yet. But, yeah. I, you know, just thinking about it, I mean, TypeScript teams working closely with Angular 2. I mean, it's... Yes, and I was, I was actually, like, looking at the Angular 2 repo and looking at the issues, and the team seemed to be very responsive to issues. And, yeah. And, yeah, so I didn't really have any concerns myself. That, and, that's good to know. I mean, obviously, we're all on board with Angular 2 here in this show, but... I think it's mm. good to think about that because people, and rightfully so, should question any product going to production that's not in uh, in release or go to production form. So it's yes. good to be able to, th- you know, to understand how you thought about it. Yeah, and and also the fact that the Azure function itself is in preview kind of helped there because basically the feature itself is in preview and the UX doesn't really have to be released it could be also be in preview until we actually release the feature. So. And in the end, I'm glad because I mean by choosing it at the time that we chose it, it means that we'll be able to kind of GA on a cutting-edge technology, which means that we're not going to have to like redo that UX for yes. quite a while because we're already using the latest thing. Yep. Timing is everything, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you say you were... No, I, I'm, I'm not trying to turn this into one framework versus another, but you, you did review a number of them, and the deciding point for you were the ones that you mentioned in the beginning. It's in TypeScript. That really helped. The fact that it you had a tutorial that worked, and some confidence in that was a, a piece of it. And was there anything about the architecture of Angular 2 that spoke to you? Yes, the component architecture definitely spoke to me. I mean, in Angular 1, I started when I started learning Angular 1 and designing apps with Angular 1, you had all these concepts about controller and directive, and, uh, and it was sometimes blurry, like, should things be controllers, should be directives? And, and for me, at least, the design at the very end ended up being very messy. While when I started thinking of, of components in the UI as just pure components, which is Angular 2 components, things started making a lot more sense. So I did like the architecture. I also like the uh, the creator support. I actually ended up using and creating my own um, in the app, which are nice. So yeah, that in general, basically. I, I did like the architecture a lot. So tell me a bit about how you organized it. Or I'll, I'll tell you. Because <laughs> I think this is interesting, right? You organized uh, your app in terms of the pieces. So you have a components, and you have a decorators, and you have a directives, and you have a handlers, and you have folders for each of these things, and that's where you put them. What do you think of that particular architectural pattern? Oh, you mean the layout of the files? Uh, yeah, or... yeah. In other words, well, uh, I actually... That was actually something that I wasn't too sure about because I experienced, I experimented with two approaches. Um, like if you see right now, if you actually, like I have an app folder and the app folder contains a component folder and then there's a styles folder and there's a services folder and so on. 
I wasn't sure if I wanted to group all the files necessary for a component in one folder and then that basically be that folder, that components folder, or if I wanted them just to be all in the same folder together. I'm still really not sure what is the right thing to do, but the way I have it right now is that every component is basically one TypeScript file, one CSS file, and one HTML file, and they seem to work for me. Well, it's so generally... I'm, not, I'm, not sure, I'm not really sure what the uh, like the recommended style is for things like that. Um, that isn't what John recommends anyway. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to put him <laughs> on the a code review podcast. Uh, the code review portion of this <laughs> yeah. uh, session. But you know what? I mean, this is what I lo- actually like about it is it gives the reader a chance to say, to take a look at an app application that works that chose this particular approach and get, you know, and it's a, it's not a huge app get a sense of what it looks like when you choose this style versus a different style and come to whatever conclusions they come to. So is that a polite way of saying it? I think it's an object. <laughs> and I'll be uh, interested to see if that continues to serve you well over time. But it's always great to see the different ways in which somebody can write in Angular and be successful. I think that's really a key thing, is that you can be successful writing an Angular 2 app in many different ways. And this is one of the examples of a, a way to do it. And also, like to be clear, like I started writing this app not knowing anything about Angular 2. Like basically, I was learning as I'm writing the app. Like every time I would I would want to do something, I would go look at the tutorials, look at the API references. Sometimes I'd go look in the Git repo for Angular itself and like try to figure out how things work. You know, when we first started this, it was we were still like trying to figure out everything we wanted to do inside of the UX. We were still trying to figure out yeah. what we wanted to do inside of the runtime. So everything was running like a million miles an hour. Yeah, and we didn't necessarily just sit down and think through. Okay, everything's going to be the right way. It was more like Let's get going as fast as possible and see what we end up with. And I think we kind of ended up where we were. Yeah, and I'm in no way like an Angular 2 expert. Like, basically, I'm just learning <laughs> as I go. Who is? Who is? So. you got to go find somebody with six years of, uh, of experience on their resume and then hire them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it's incredibly readable code. I'll just say that for anybody who wants to go look. So uh, there's stuff to learn here. And you, you're dealing with many interesting challenges. You have to interact with another service. You're using dependency injection rather uh, significantly so that different things are coming in and out. So just forget about what it's actually doing. I think that it's a worthy thing for people to take a look at and, and learn from. So thank you for this contribution to the community. Thank you. I'd like to hear a little about like what was easy and what was really hard for you guys putting this app together. Well, what was easy was getting started, like just following the tutorial that you had on Angular.io and just getting started from there. What wasn't very clear, you're still in pre-release, but since I wanted to actually ship something that would work, I wasn't really sure how do you bundle stuff together, how do you minify stuff. I discovered that minifying doesn't work on the beta releases. So like bundling things together, it it took me some time, but then I ended up using the um, uh, system.js builder uh, that bundles everything into one file, and that seems to work fine. Uh, You hit on a very, very uh, sore topic for me lately, or deep topic for me. I've been trying to figure out how do we bundle and build. And I'm curious, when you import all your modules, how are you avoiding importing the entire world? I am not, actually. Uh, (laughs) Well, I I think that was also one part that wasn't really clear to me. Like, I initially understood that the way importing should work, it should be lazy, like it should just import stuff as it uses it. But when I would try the framework, it seemed to just download everything on startup. So I wasn't really sure what's going on in the framework. I thought maybe the uh, lazy loading wasn't implemented yet or something. I just ended up using the system.js builder, which basically just builds the entire app into one JavaScript file. So, yeah, that's what I use. And then... 
all the other scripts are basically just the polyfill for IE and, uh, and other ECMAScript 6 stuff. Well, you will be very happy to know that that stuff is going to get much better. But right now, yeah, that, that is a difficult uh, thing to do. The yeah. things that uh, Brad Green showed on stage at ngconf about getting a, what was it, a 29K file of Angular inside draft in Hello World, um, yeah. that stuff's coming, and it is possible today. But mm -hmm. to use the CLI and the tools that are available, uh, right now it's not hard as a default state. Ward, correct me where I'm wrong, but uh, I believe the default state is you build an app right now, you might be getting half a mega files uh, with, if you don't do something about it. Yeah, I don't remember exactly the size of the file, but it's pretty large. It's like a meg or something. Yeah, and it will get down. I mean, as I said, the stuff they're showing now, basically once you get tree shaking in there and use rollup.js, it gets rid of all the stuff you're not using inside your app. And then you use the offline template compiler so you compile stuff on the server. That yeah. gets rid of more. And then you gzip it and you bundle it. And eventually you end up with a lazy loaded app that's, you know, 10, 20, 30K. But those things are not easy to get to today. So I was curious, in your production app, you're not taking advantage of those then, right? You're, no, you're we're just not. using your own uh, bundle. Yeah, we're using our own bundle and we have a CDN that hopefully makes things slightly faster for that large file. But that was definitely one of the tough topics, yes, trying to figure out what is the best way to actually run in a performant way in production. Because mostly load time, initial load time was really bad when it had to download like a million files. And even when you bundled them into one large file, it was also pretty bad. And I ended up doing like this CDN and custom bundle that kind of works. So. Yeah, and that's how I solved it right now on my own, too. It's I make it sound like it's awful. It's not awful right now. It's definitely yeah. doable, but it will get yes. much, much better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and you won't have to change your app to do it. It'll just be messing around at the at the configuration level. Um, when did you start writing this? Uh, January. January. Yeah. We had like the initial prototype written in December yes. that was based on. I think. Yeah. Beta. I think I wrote it the same week or maybe when beta two went out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be the first of January. Yeah. And and you showed it at Build, which was what March, May, April. I can't remember. Yeah, no, it was it was a it was a three month uh, yeah. less it was less than three months. We actually I, I can't remember the number of weeks itself, but it's less than three months. As we went from just kind of not even entirely sure on what the UX was going to look like to shipping something at Build that we were proud of. Yeah, I think to me that's an impressive time scale. How many I mean, people are using this? Software, so cut, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean, want to know like, how many people good. are using it right now. I mean, we have uh, you know I'm not sure what I'll be allowed to get away with. Thousands of, of you know uh, users is is a fair to say there. Um, it's been heavily used. We've gotten a lot of feedback. But the nice thing about being open source is um, I don't have to like ask them to file a support ticket if they don't like the UX. They've just been opening up issues on our GitHub. So I think that the most recent one was someone wanted a description, and I just pointed them at our GitHub and they created a mock-up of what that should look like. Even yeah, which I love. If you cool. want to yeah. give us a feedback, give us a mock-up of what you want that to look like because it makes our jobs really really yeah. simple at that point. And as far as performance goes, I mean, we have been talking about the file size there being about a meg. Mm -hmm. Do you find that really impacts the usage much, especially on mobile, where a larger file is kind of a bigger deal? Well, well is, would you use this in a mobile environment? You can. It, it, it you looks can. Funny. It looks funny because the Azure portal in general doesn't really yeah. work too well in mobile. Yeah, mobile wasn't really a design criteria for us in this case. Yeah. No, no, I want to thumb it. type my JavaScript functions. Come on, guys. <laughs> I was going to say, what are you doing there? I'm standing in the coffee line. Oh, I think I'll write a function. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I have like prepared for like a demo by pulling up my iPad and pulling up the portal on my iPad because the iPad screen is big enough to go ahead and do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, so, so startup time on the file size is not too bad once it's cached and the CDN right. makes it pretty fast. Yeah. So it's not a big concern now. Like the first time you hit the site, yeah, it can be slightly slow uh, if you don't have a cache yet. But yeah, that was one of the things that I kind of, one of the corners that I cut, uh, hoping that in the future is just going to get better once Angular actually supports all the stuff that you guys have planned for. But yeah. The other question I have, I'm, it seems like Angular 2 support is pretty universal with modern evergreen browsers, but did you run into any browsers issues with any particular uh, systems? Well, we did run into some IE issues. Luckily, the, the Azure portal itself, itself only supports modern, modern browsers as well, like Chrome, Firefox, and only the latest version of IE. So luckily, I didn't have to like test IE 9 or IE 7 or anything like that. I did run into a few issues with IE. Uh, the last one, I think, is an issue that I still don't quite understand, where the uh, change detector doesn't really work in IE if the app is running in an iframe, which is our case, which was kind of weird. Um, but yeah, every now and then I run into some bizarre issues in IE, and I have to fix them. Can I differentiate between IE and Edge? So it works fine in Edge, but just in the yeah. latest version of IE, it doesn't work. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Those are to totally two new engines, and so... Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to be clear. Yeah, so it works. Yeah, everything I've tried like pretty much works straight away in Chrome, Firefox, and Edge. It's only IE that I've had trouble with um, sometimes, but uh, yeah. but luckily, like most of the trouble that I had was easily fixed or worked around at least. So. Yeah, like actually, I just need, I wanted some more time to look into the uh, change detector issue to see if it's an actual bug in the framework or if I was doing something wrong in IE. But uh, other than that, everything seems to work. Is it true? Since you're bringing up, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, he brought up bugs, and I was just going to ask, is it tricky with <laughs> exactly. the release candidate or with the beta to differentiate between bugs in the framework and bugs in your own app? And is the debugging approach different? I mean, we have Augury now, but I don't know if you had it when you were building it. You had what now? Sorry? Augury. It's the new version of Battering. It's oh, okay. It's a debugging tool that uh, pops up in Chrome and gives you lots of insight into your app as you're developing it, how it's showing up in the DOM. But but I don't know that would help you with IE because I don't know that it'll run in IE. Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah. No, I definitely didn't use that. What I, what I would do is whenever I find some weird unexplained behavior that I didn't really understand, I would go to your Git repo and then search in the issues, try to find somebody who opened a similar issue. And I usually I could usually easily find these issues uh, or anything that I had so basically, that's what I did. I, if I couldn't explain something, I would go to your Git repo and search. The few times that I have I've had that happen, I found an issue right away on the GitHub repo, and it explained like what's going on and a workaround. So I'm that, curious, that as you're talking about this too, you developed all this from scratch, and it sounds like you were basically uh, I can imagine you guys sitting there waiting for beta. Then you went beta, and you you dove into the code in January. Then you went release candidate, and you're releasing this. I imagine you guys are pretty leading edge developers as far as, you know, diving in right away. And now that you've built your own uh, style of creating the project and kind of working through the process, do you, you guys know that there's a CLI that the Angular team has been talking about and even promoting and we've talked about it on this show. I'm curious what you think about that CLI and what problems that you're interested in it helping you solve and, uh, you know, how you solve them on your own. Do you find it'll be a useful tool for you? I think it'll be useful. I mean, the one pain point that still exists for me, at least right now, is trying to add a dependency to both Node and JSPM because I'm using JSPM. So, like, normally I have to add a dependency twice. I'm, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I don't really understand how JSPM works. But do you mean adding it to the JSPM file and to the package JSON, or where do, where are you adding it twice? 
Well, I added I added twice in fact to the JSON, um, and then uh, I definitely have not used a C, a C, any CLI other than Node uh, NPM, I mean, and JSPM. So I'm not. Yeah, I, mean, I, just, I just pulled up the uh, the CLI link on our uh, screen that we're looking at here, and he's kind of taking a look at the features. And I'm guessing he's drooling. I know. Yes, I don't know if I can give feedback on the CLI because I'm not really I'm completely not familiar with it. Well, I think that's fair, too, because the CLI, you know, tooling always comes out after the language and the frameworks yeah. and things at all companies, right? <laughs> but uh, the CLI, one of the things we've been working on trying to figure out is, you know, what features are going to help people and what features really are, you know, not going to be as helpful to people. And uh, you guys are creating all your files from scratch, for example, I imagine. I heard yeah. you mention you're creating the TypeScript file, the HTML file, the CSS file for a component all on your own. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I assume you're just right-clicking inside of VS Code or Visual Studio to do that? Yeah, pretty much. Basically, they copy each, you know. It's just like everybody. They, you do a copy and a face job, and then you go and you fix it. <laughs> that's I've been there. That's the way I do it. I mean, who can remember? I'm guessing. I don't know. What What is your workflow? I mean, like, if it, if you had to, like, suddenly add a new component right now, what would you do? Uh, right well, I, I just create a new file. Basically, call it whatever.component.ts. And after I like write the initial class, I just go and create another file for the template and another file for the uh, CSS. I like the ability to inline templates, but because editors don't really support like highlighting and stuff like that, so I ended up just creating a separate file for every HTML or uh, CSS file. That keeps the code clear. See, like I always end up just kind of pulling the two out, even though it's convenient to have them in the same. And just... yeah, I mean, I put them back using one of the gulp tasks that yeah. basically just shoves everything back together. But, uh, but yeah, the one thing I find so it sounds like you're go ahead. Sure it's just a bug uh, somewhere. If you have a typo in your template, like the whole app doesn't load and doesn't throw any errors. Uh, it was weird to me. Mm. Oh, like if you've got a directive or a component that you misspell somewhere. Yeah. And it just doesn't do anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause it's, it's looking at that HTML going, I don't know what that thing is. I guess I'll just ignore you. Right. Yeah, I know, but it's just it's so easy to make typos in the HTML because it's not typed. So it is. Typos. Um, yeah, that, that could be annoying sometimes. But yeah. you know, we need we need Anders to come along and create type HTML like he did for typing. Right. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I'm yes. kidding. I'm kidding. Well, actually, I do think though that work is being done on that, especially for the inline templates. But work is being done on that, and the new template compiler may be more supportive in right, terms of giving you information. Check. Uh, Not for creating sort of, types, but for code checking. Right. And, well, and for template checking, it'll say, you know what, because it's going to marry the two. It's going to try and wire them up together, and it's going to say, you're missing something here because I can't find that thing, which is what yeah. you – that's what you want, right? That's the kind yeah, of Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, one so of the things that I can't stand still is I, – I, I wonder if you ran into this a lot. I really don't like this. I love Angular 2, but one thing I don't like is when I create components – and they have child components. The fact that I have to declare them inside of the components still kind of bugs me, and I always forget to do that. And then Angular kindly reminds me when I run it, saying, I don't know what the heck that thing is. But did you guys yeah. run into that a lot, or, or is that something you just I, got I did over? Run into I'm, it. I'm I did run into it initially, but I just got over it. Like As soon as I create a new component, and I know it's going to have children components inside of it, I just add them right away. The one thing that I did that I did run into that is still kind of annoying, and I'm still not really sure what is the right way of doing is like say you have a component that contains a whole bunch of child components and like one of those child components contains another child component and then you want to bubble up an event all the way from the sub child component all the way to the parent i didn't find an easy way to do it except like creating an input and output in every single component on the way that doesn't really need it 
or creating like one general service that has an event and then you throw a new broadcast event basically and then have somebody listen to it. I saw that you did that. You wrote your own uh, message bus uh, in, yeah. in process message bus, which I think people will find interesting to look at too. And uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, when I was doing that, I thought it was very hacky, but I didn't want to keep didn't want to have to keep adding like inputs and outputs to every single component on the way. Yeah, that's messy. Yeah. Actually, I don't think it's hacky. I think that's exactly right. What you were doing I there. Okay. No, what he's doing, no, but the, making making input output that goes seven layers up through all the parents would be kind of hacky. No, 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 not doing that. I mean, creating yeah. a service for messaging, and then you can even create special purpose messages and scope them so that the conversation exactly. on that bus is local to a workflow and doesn't the rest of the app doesn't have to know about it. I think that that actually is the best pattern for doing the kind of thing that you're talking about. Uh, well, if, if you, and step out of Angular 2 for a second, right, and think about this. Yeah, what would you do? Messaging, what would you do without it? I mean, you'd create a messaging pattern. These things have been yeah. around for years, and it's it's not like Angular 2 invented a new way of doing it. So I agree. Actually, so, so let's turn that around and say, so what, do you, what did you think was going to be there, or what did you wish was going to be there? Well, I don't know, like Angular 1 had this uh, scope.broadcast thing, mm -hmm. which I used a few times. So I kind of built the broadcast service based on that mm -hmm. pattern. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really sure. Like, I mean, I obviously did it because that's what made sense to me at the time, but I wasn't sure if there is a way in Angular 2 to kind of handle this global events, a, bit, a way that's built in at least, to handle these global events or the global state in general of some things. And help me, I haven't seen the exact code, but what did you use inside Message Bus? Did you use Event Emitter? Did you yeah, use uh, RxJS or did you make something else? I used, used Event Emitter. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. The code review, the code police will be right over. <laughs> because no, see, a, I think that's, that's actually where no I started no. too. Uh -huh. That's where all of us started. Right. All of us did that until we learned from the powers that be, the great hand reached across the sky and touched us on the shoulder and said, that's not what that's for. So, um, okay. but the good news is, <laughs> yeah, I was actually confused. So you, these, like, you have event emitter, you have Ooh. subject, and you have RX stuff. I wasn't really sure which one should I use. Sometimes I use subject, sometimes I use event emitter, and I just no. Yeah. We're going to send the police over, and they're going to beat you with a whip. <laughs> who, who are these people? These these code police? Because I used event emitter at first too, and I felt like I got kicked in the rear end when I did that. So. Oh, absolutely! I'm right over, John, I've got the boot ready. Uh, no, it's, it's funny. You know what? And I, I was reading it and you know, the pattern is right there. You're doing all, you know, it's all, that's why I really encourage people who, cause by the way, you are by no means alone in having the need to do this kind of communication around the app. And there is nothing in Angular 2 itself. And there isn't going to be because they want, they, they deliberately decided not to do it. And so we are left to come up with a solution for this very real problem, which you have taken. And I think, you know, uh, the police will be satisfied if you replace a Venomator with something else. But the idea is right there. Mm -hmm. okay. so, so what you can do now is you can open an issue on Ahmed. And <laughs> Absolutely. And the issue is just going to say, you bad man, you. How <laughs> You're doing so, it wrong. So what did you learn from this? What did you learn from this exercise? Don't let war near your code. <laughs> and why would I send you a PR that actually fixed the problem? Oh, no. It is so much easier to berate you. Just to well, what do you think yeah, yeah. this is? Open source? <laughs> yeah. 
And by the way, you know, what did I pay for it? Nothing. So yeah, that's exactly. fine. But the less I pay for it, the more I chastise you. But I think that's, I mean, going back to your initial problem statement, right? You, in Angular 1, you, you were familiar with Angular 1 or not to say, I had broadcast and emit. How do I solve the same problem in Angular 2? And you realize that these things were event emitters of some sort. So I guess yeah. the name of that keyword probably drew you to it. Is that right? It's not just that. Like, I mean, the tutorial was using event emitters in other places, and I figured, like, they're just event emitters, so I just used them. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, and to be fair, early on, this is why I did the same thing. Early on with Angular 2 experience, event emitters were more pervasive. They were throughout more examples in the code and more other places, too. And I yeah. think there was a slow migration that I noticed is eventually I started seeing RxJS replacing these things inside of uh, AngularJS example, or Angular 2 examples, which is when I started poking around going, what is this thing? And how should I use it? Because I'm still relatively new to RxJS myself, so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was also one other thing. Like, uh, I was more used to promises, um, like yeah. chaining promises and doing all, all sorts of stuff with promises. I like observables because they enable a lot of really interesting and cool things that you can do that you can't really do with promises. Like, I needed some time to actually learn all the weird operator names um, that are there. Yeah, but at some point, right, you probably struggle with this a little like I do. I I know when I'm using new technologies, it's like, how many new concepts can I take on? And yes. at some point, you got to say, you know what? I can solve it with this. I know i got to learn RxJS later, but for now, I'm going to use this, and I'll, I'll pick that up later when I can. I mean, did you do that with a few things? Yes, I had to do that with a lot of things, actually, because we had a very, like, we were moving really fast, and we had a date that we couldn't mess. Um, I, had, I had a very aggressive date for yes, them. So... So basically, like a lot, a lot of concepts, I was like, yeah, fine, whatever. I'll, I'll worry about it later. I'll just do it the way I know it now. And uh, like, actually, if you look around the code, there were some few, there were a few places where we were actually like grabbing the native element and using jQuery to do something because I didn't really know what's the right way of doing it. Um, yeah, I saw jQuery in here also, and that yeah. was also I was also going to come down heavy on you there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I so Ward, why, why don't you tell people Ward? Or Ward? What? There in the GitHub repo. What? I create a label for Ward in there, which my label. Oh. Is there you go. There you go. So Ward, what would they use instead of jQuery? Can you can you help people oh, understand? Well, you know the great thing about sitting here miles away and just pontificating uh, is that I can <laughs> wag my finger without knowing what I'm talking about. And this jQuery example is exactly that. I haven't a clue why you use jQuery. I only know that it's always bad to use jQuery. And uh, that's all I really need to know. I'll just shut my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, your word. <laughs> uh, goodness. No, you know, that's, but really, expedient programming, it, you can do it. You can write Angular 2 code and you can go do it. And then you can decide whether that actually is technical debt or whether it is actually just the right thing to have done. And then you can sneer at the police as they drive by. <laughs> and I've got a double uh, double down on Ward's comment. Of, I think it's absolutely awesome that you guys are sharing this uh, with the world, with the open source world, as a great example of something that has gone to production with Angular 2 so quickly. Uh, it's definitely going to have a lot of value for a lot of people. Well, I, mean, I think we're glad that we, we could open it up. I mean, it's, it's honestly more yeah. valuable for us that we can get feedback from customer, like from the users of Azure Functions on well, this UX didn't actually look very well. Let me go ahead and tell you what I prefer it works. The problem when you're your closed source is those iteration cycles are so short that we couldn't possibly ship as aggressive as, I mean, you ship how many times a week? Yes, a lot of times. <laughs> we, we couldn't do that if we weren't completely open about how we were doing things. And we've got a great insiders team that helps us, you know, 
keep up with those things. Yeah, maybe you could even focus on the real thing, which is delivering the ability to use Azure Functions <laughs> instead <laughs> of. <laughs> so I, I know I'm making these little sarcastic comments, and they really mean that myself as much as anything, because it's easy to get sucked up into how do I make this code perfect when I'm really trying to deliver value, and that's what you're doing. I am curious, though, going back to the uh, observables thing, do you feel that there are things that are happening in your application that are event stream-like? where things keep coming at you or you wish that you could design around it in, in that fashion? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, like, for example, your your app is kind of keeping track of, like, I make a change and I push the save button and then I'm sort of, there's a flow of events coming back from Azure itself telling you what its progress is and how you report that and stuff like that. That seems like a natural for having a streamed events rather than a promises thing. Are there other locations like that where you think maybe things do look like an event stream instead of a request response? Oh, most 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 places actually do look like an event stream. Like, I mean, most places in the UX, like you click something, so we send a request because you clicked on that thing, and that's very clearly an event stream thing. Because like you can have multiple clicks, and then I normally would have to like keep track of all the promises and only actually execute the callback on the last promise. But like using observables, I can just switch map and you're there. Oh, see, you already know the terms. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, switch map used to go used to be called flat map latest. I don't know why they changed all the names. Um, that was kind of confusing also at the beginning. But yeah, no, I do I do like these operators a lot. Like a lot of them. For example, I just added caching a couple of days ago to one of the services, and that was actually really easy to add because I'm everything is on observables, so I can very easily cache them. Um, I have a question that I would like to ask. Um, as you work through the betas and then into the release candidates, did you mm -hmm. find that the upgrades were pretty seamless, or were there things that you had to do to make them work as you moved through it? No, they were very seamless for most of the part. I mean, RC1 did have a lot of rating changes uh, in terms of like how you import stuff, but that was really easy to just find a place. So no, I didn't really have any issues upgrading. I pretty much followed most of the betas, and then we're now on RC1. I was actually really impressed by how stable everything was. Because, <laughs> like, we didn't have any breaking changes. We didn't have any to make any big changes in the code. So it was nice. We should aspire to be as good with functions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So after going through this whole process, would you recommend Angular 2 to other people following your experience? Would you do this all over again? Yes, absolutely, yeah. I would. Uh, yes, I definitely do recommend it now to everyone who asks me for stuff. It's, it's really nice. Yeah. Right? Has there been a conversation among, because uh, uh, I know there are other people in other parts of the portal that are written with other front-end technologies. Have you, have you all gotten together and sort of shared your, your reflections? I, I was actually talking with, like, the, so the Logic Apps team, they recently rebuilt their UX in kind of a similar fashion where it's all done inside of an iframe now. Mm -hmm. And I found out that they actually built it with React. So we've actually got a war going on now between the two teams, and we've got to be better. So, so you know, Angular can, can win versus just the React frame in that sense. I mean, they're... There are other teams here investigating that, and I think we've learned a lot from this pattern that will just end up being shared in terms of yeah. you know, how to do this. I mean, the one thing I like more about Angular, like I actually looked at React back then, but I like that Angular actually provides everything in the framework, like mm -hmm. HTTP service, uh, lifetime management, stuff like that, while React was mostly just for views, and then you had to figure out how we're going to do HTTP, how we're going to do component management, stuff like that, so... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, I'm so glad you said that because I, every time I've mentioned, yeah, you know, you can use the HTTP module with Angular 2, I hear from some people, you know, experts saying, well, you know, you don't have to use that module. You can just use uh, the Fetch API, and uh, that's great. I'm, I'm like, no, no, no. I, I like having a framework that actually gives me 
everything out of the box that I'm going to yeah. use for 90% of my development. Yeah, I like that too. Like, yes, like every now and then I might need to actually build an XHR myself for something that's very specific. But yeah, other than that, no, I like I like having the framework actually provide me with everything uh, as opposed to have me like look. Every time I want to add something, I have to look at like a million different frameworks and pick one. Uh, it makes getting started a lot easier too. Yes. You know exactly the technology to use. Everyone recommends the same patterns. Mm -hmm. So The dependency injection system, have you found that to be to your liking or uh, yeah, yes. thoughts about that? No, I did. I actually like that a lot. Like up until very recently, I actually had a whole bunch of different mock services that I was injecting for testing. I did remove that recently for other reasons because I didn't want to maintain the mocks. But yes, I did like the dependency injector. Uh, seemed to work very well. You brought up the word tests. Have you written some tests over this uh, framework? I, I did. And I did have some tests that I removed because they weren't very easy to maintain. But no, so no, we don't really have any big tests that are. Uh, that's what that was actually one of the next items that I wanted to look at uh, how to add tests. But do you, so hear, far, do you hear them outside the window? You can hear the police coming. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. Actually, uh, I don't know if they're coming for you or for me because we've really got to get that testing chapter out there so that yeah. so that you're not having to discover it all yourself. But I I can tell you that the facilities for testing, which are being improved even as I speak, are really quite nice. So when you do get to it, you'll like it. Well, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and get to picks. We've been talking about this for about an hour, and it's been fun. But anyway, John, what are your picks? So I'm going to pick uh, some things that I've been researching lately. I've been doing a ton of research into the mobile web, and and during this research, I'm finding a couple things that really piqued my personal interest. And one of those is progressive web apps. That's something that um, Jeff Cross has been working on quite a bit for the Angular team, Angular Mobile. And I just find them fascinating that we've got these responsive web apps that now can have some native-like features on the phone, things like pinning to the home screen or running offline. Uh, so looking into that, as well as NativeScript, uh, has been another thing that's been really piquing my interest because now I can take Angular 2 skills and write some apps, uh, although I'm using a, a XAML or XML-like form or view layer. And then also Ionic 2. So in that view, I'm really looking at Ionic 2, I'm like, wow, Cordova, you know, is that really the way to go? Now we got things like NativeScript, but Ionic 2 is now branching out and starting to think more about how can we do, how can we let people use Ionic to create our uh, awesomely themed controls and applications uh, with Angular 2 and not even care if they are truly native mobile, just maybe going to create a mobile ready type application. So I'm looking at these tools in different ways actually these days. And my pick is all three of them progressive web apps. NativeScript, and Ionic 2. All right. Ward, what are your picks? Well, I'm going to go off tech and recommend a book of poetry <laughs> by Billy Collins, who I think is one of the funniest poets out there. And, you know, you think, ah, the poetry thing, that's for somebody else. But I think Billy Collins speaks to all of us. And uh, just to whet your appetite, I'll, I'll read the beginning of one called Hell. This is a poem called Hell. I have a feeling that it is much worse than shopping for a mattress at a mall. Of greater duration, without question, and there is no random pitchforking here. No licking flames to fear. Only this cavernous store with its maze of bedding. And then it goes on. Anyway, check out Billy Collins if you want uh, poetry that amuses. All right. I have been listening to a book lately. I'm going to drive some people crazy because I picked this on all the shows this week. But they, they kind of stagger, so you'll get them over a few weeks anyway. The book is Start With Why by Simon Sinek, 
and I have really enjoyed it. It's been superb as far as I was talking to somebody about a month ago who asked me or who kept talking about the why of his business. And I finally looked at him and I said, how do you figure out that why? And he's like, well, you already have it. You just don't know it. And then he recommended this book. And uh, it, it has been absolutely superb. I'm almost done with it. But anyway, um, I haven't quite gotten to the part where he walks you through figuring out what your why is, though I have some ideas, I think. Um, but I'm curious to see what the, what the end result is. So I'm just going to pick the book, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Um, I've been listening to it on Audible, so I'll just kind of double pick that because I really enjoy the audiobooks. Ahmed, what are your picks? Uh, well, I guess I can pick a book as well. Uh, I've been listening to a book uh, called Sapiens. Uh, Bill Gates recommended it recently, and I just kind of bought it on Audible and started listening to it. It's really nice. It's very interesting. Uh, it's about the development of humankind. It's a cool book. If you have a chance, check it out. All right, Chris, what are your picks? So my pick today is uh, Promise Theory. Um, I was just at a conference, the serverless conference in New York City, and there's a great presentation, which hopefully should be online here soon, uh, by Patrick Dubois about Promise Theory and about how you can use Promise Theory to kind of provide an information model for disparate systems, which inside of a serverless pattern is really important because the things have less dependencies on each other. Um, and I was reading through it and I was like, this models so many things, both in real life and in kind of what I've been doing from a programming perspective. It was from a guy named Mark Burgess. He's got some great books on it. He built the CF engine, which is, you know, kind of an automation engine on top of that. Um, so it seems like a really rich space to start digging into. What, what is a promise theory? I know what a promise is in reality. That's something you break. <laughs> <laughs> and it was interesting enough because I was hearing uh, the presentation about promise theory and what promises are, what a promise is, how an agent basically presents a promise, and how essentially inside of promise theory, when you take a, uh, you don't take a dependency so much on another agent's promises, you assume that they're going, they're lying to you and that will be broken. So essentially there's conditions where they say that I'll definitely break my promise, and you still basically build assuming they'll fail. And it's, and it's really great when you're talking about distributed systems because the number one problem you have with distributed systems is that your chances that one of those leafs will fail kind of go up as you add more dependencies. So it's kind of an interesting way of kind of treating those promises and thinking about them as each agent presents a series of promises and how you build applications. I'm, I'm really kind of getting into the serverless application space and how you build these service-oriented architectures using not a real backend, but just these kind of functions or some service someone's running for me. And this theory seems to kind of help provide some uh, ground for those things to set on rather than just hoping that they all work in the end. Very cool. If people want to follow up with what the two of you are working on, follow you on Twitter, anything like that, uh, where do they go? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, Chris, uh, you can follow me at Crandy Codes. If you want to follow more about uh, what we're doing on the Functions team, you can follow the at Azure Functions Twitter handle. We've got like team blogs where we talk somewhat about the product, but we also try to talk about how we built the product um, we really want to be open about how we've been building things so those are the two best places all right well thank you for coming we'll go ahead and wrap up the show and we'll catch y'all next week bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more do you want to have conversations with the adventures in angular crew and their guests do you want to support the show now you can Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today.